0: Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you all once again. Well, we have another very difficult-to-understand passage before us as we continue on uh, in this marvelous book of Romans. So before we begin, uh, it's appropriate for us to pray and ask for God's help and His illumination. So let's bow. Let's go before the Lord. Our God, as I look out upon my brothers and sisters in Christ, upon your church, Lord, there are many needs in this room, many which nobody knows about except you. Lord, I pray that this would not be a wasted time. May this be a time where your word speaks and ministers and strengthens and heals meeting people where they're at in their needs and their struggles and their difficulties in a way that only you can god as our good shepherd lord would you open our eyes to give us understanding of what you're saying in this passage would you give us hearts to receive these truths and let it strengthen our faith and stir us up to worship. You are a great God. So have your way now. Use me and my weakness to speak this passage clearly to your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you uh, watched the World Cup? Uh, not too many of you. Well, uh, most of you missed out on one of the most exciting World Cups ever, uh, with many compelling storylines, uh, with many tremendous uh, nail-biting matches. And one of the biggest storylines of the tournament was about England. Now, I don't know how many of you are aware, but Britain is known to be the inventor or the founder of soccer. We should call it football, as they call it. Uh, Football as we know it today. And being the home of football, you would think that England is a perennial winner at their own game. But actually, historically, England has been known to be a choker and loser. Whereas all these other nations, have won major tournaments like the World Cup, such as Brazil, which has won the World Cup five times, Italy and Germany, which have won the World Cup four times each. England has only won it once in 1966. Before that and since then, they have failed miserably again and again and again. Now, in this year's tournament, it seemed like things might be different. This was a different England team with a bunch of young lads, a new generation that didn't seem to carry the, the weight, the baggage of all the, the country's past failures. You know, what started to get people's attention was that they won their game against Colombia in the round of 16 in a penalty shootout. England has historically been known to be chokers in penalty shootouts. They've been bounced out of many tournaments that way. But this time they won. Was this a sign that perhaps it would be different this time? And then they won their quarterfinal match against Sweden 2-0, which ratcheted up the hopes of this nation to a high fever pitch. And the song, the anthem of England that they were singing all throughout the tournament is a song called Football's Coming Home. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home. And what this song is about is not just, you know, the World Cup trophy championship coming home to the nation, but the sport of football, the entire sport it says coming home to its rightful birthplace. But unfortunately, in their semifinal match against Croatia, Even after going up 1-0, they lost 2-1. And while the entire nation was so very proud of their boys for going farther than most England teams go, they are once again left empty-handed with their crushed hopes and broken hearts. Now this here is a small glimpse of how heartbreaking it is That the nation of Israel, God's chosen people from Abraham, the home of true worship of the true and living God, the birthplace, you could say, of true religion, has largely rejected the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, while this gospel has spread with great success among all the other nations of the world. Now, our passage this morning concludes this important section in Romans, chapters 9 to 11, where we've been learning about God's sovereign plan for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, I know this passage is hard to follow, hard to understand, but if you're following along the scripture reading, I don't know if you realize we've been giving incredible insight into the mind of God, into the inscrutable ways of God here in chapter 11. Here we see God's plan to bring salvation first from Israel, then out to all the nations, and then eventually back to Israel again. Now, because this passage is dense and difficult, I'm not going to try to this morning tackle everything that it has to say. But I want us to simply see and exalt in three things about God. Make it as simple as possible, as helpful as possible to us. I want us to see three things about God and how he deals with Israel and the world. And so those three things that we'll, those three things that we'll see are God's covenant faithfulness. Second, his relentless grace. And lastly, we'll see his unsearchable wisdom. So that's my outline this morning. First, let's look at God's covenant faithfulness. Now, if you've been with us, if you remember, the question before us that the Apostle Paul has been addressing is in verse 1. So if you'll look there with me. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? If ethnic Israel is God's chosen people, after all the covenants, and promises he's made to them throughout their history, and yet the vast majority of them have rejected Jesus and salvation, does that mean that God has utterly abandoned them? Has he failed them? It's a very crucial question that Paul is dealing with, because if he failed Israel here, then how do we not know that he might fail us? That he's not a trustworthy God. That's why he's spending these chapters talking about this, addressing this question. Well, to this, he responds in his typical way that we've been seeing throughout Romans. He says, by no means. How so? Well, what we see is that God's rejection of Israel is never total nor final. No matter how Simple and rebellious and unfaithful Israel has been, God has never totally, nor will he finally reject them. He's always faithful. So in our passage, we see this. It's not a total rejection ever, as there has always been a remnant, this word remnant, among Israel who God has kept for himself amongst this rebellious people all the way up to the present day. So look with me. In verse 1, Paul says, look at me first. I'm the prime example of this. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. No one surpassed him in his knowledge and zeal. He was a persecutor of Christians. Of course, we know the story. He has now become an apostle of Jesus. There's no bigger 180 than that. And this is a dramatic example, not just in his life, but that God has not forsaken his people, Israel. And then we read in verses 2 to 4 of the time of Elijah, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, where they had this king who was perhaps the worst king that Israel ever had, and that's saying something. Who was that? Ahab. King Ahab, who led the entire nation astray to worship the false god Baal. And after Elijah, if you remember this narrative, had this epic showdown with all the prophets of Baal in Israel, where God sent down his fire upon that altar that was set up and consumed the whole thing, demonstrating that he was the true and living God and not Baal, You know, and that did not still turn the Israelites back to God. Elijah, he became depressed. And he just wanted to die as he was fleeing into the wilderness, running for his life. He thought he was the only one left. And how did God respond to him then? He responded with these reassuring words that we see in verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So even in the Israel's worst period, their greatest unfaithfulness, God always kept a remnant for himself. And that was true in Paul's day. In verse 5 it says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. You know, there were Jewish believers in that church in Rome that Paul was writing to. And you know what? This is the case up to the present day. And just to give you an example, in our local presbytery of our denomination, there's a church that meets in northeast Philly called the Rock of Israel Congregation. It's a Presbyterian church. And they reach out specifically to Jewish people, and including... The more than 50,000 recent Russian Jewish immigrants that have come into this area. And they have centered and congregated in the northeast part of our city and into the suburbs, and this church is reaching out to them. And so they worship in English and in Russian. And through their powerful ministry, they have seen Jewish people come to faith in Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah and Lord for salvation. See, God has never given up on his people Israel. He has always kept at least a remnant for himself. But you know what? Just keeping a remnant for himself is not the end of Israel's story. That would not be in full keeping with the covenant that he made with them. So what will happen to Israel? Would you look down with me in verses 26 and 27? It says, And in this way all Israel one day will be saved. Now that doesn't mean literally every single person, but that country as a whole, people will turn. As it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One day there will be a mass turning of Jewish people to Jesus for salvation. You see, once God declared long ago that He would be Israel's God and they would be His people as a treasure possession. He obligated himself to keep that promise to them no matter what. No matter how unfaithful they have been to him. And this is where we see one of God's essential characteristics, his covenant faithfulness to his people. And undergirding, grounding that faithfulness is his utter commitment To keep his word. You see, if God didn't keep his word, if he wasn't true to what he said he promised, he'd be betraying his very person. He would be denying his very truthful self. Now let me bring this down to us. What does this mean for you? What should you take away from this? Well, I want you to be secured and strengthened and comforted, not just by God's covenant faithfulness to ethnic Israel, but to all of us who have entered into his covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you who now are in this covenant, everlasting covenant relationship With God through faith in Jesus? See all that God promises to you in His Word. There are countless promises in Scripture literally for every situation of your life. Do you realize that? There is literally in I will, God will, for every situation of your life from birth to death, and beyond. For endless mercy in the midst of your sin and failings. For power so that you can continue to change. For comfort when you're in trouble. For wisdom when you're confused. For help when you're sick and weak. For provision When you're in need for consolation and peace in death, for happiness beyond the grave. You know, I want to give you a simple assignment this week. I want you to take that area of your life right now in this season that you're struggling to trust God for, whatever it is. Trust God for a need of yours, a struggle that you've been going through. I want you to look in your Bible for numerous promises that speak to that very need, that very struggle. I want you to do that. Don't just tune me out here. I want you to go to your Bible this week and look at God's countless promises to you. And I want you to read and take in those promises to you now in light of God's covenant faithfulness. That those promises to you, all of God's promises to you in Scripture is His obligation to you to keep them no matter what. When you see Israel's example, not even your unfaithfulness can undo God's faithfulness to you. You see, if God does not keep his word to you no matter what, that ungods him. So would you see all that he is to you, all that he says he will be to you, and trust him. Bank on those promises. Hope in him for it without a shadow of a doubt. That's his covenant faith. Let's look next at his relentless grace. In our passage, we see what God's covenant faithfulness to Israel requires him to do. He goes through tremendous lengths to woo this unbelieving, stiff-necked people of his back to himself. Now, as we saw last Sunday in chapter 10, The Jews were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own that would merit God's salvation. And so they were persistently refusing God's offer of salvation by grace through the gift of Jesus' righteousness. You know, tragically, this is the same snare for millions of people around the world today, especially the religiously devout. You know, I've traveled to Asia a number of times, and I've entered into Buddhist and Hindu temples where I saw and was struck by religious devotion that honestly rather puts Christians to shame. You know, I was on a flight once where I was sitting next to this um, Caucasian Buddhist lady, and she had this kind of kind of eerie spiritual aura about her where she was completely oblivious to her surroundings and she was this like on this totally different spiritual level plane and on the entire flight without stopping the whole time she was muttering prayers going through her prayer beads and I was sitting next to her and I was probably thinking about something sports related. Maybe think about what free agents the eagles were to get or something. And I was sitting next to her I was like, dang, this lady is putting me to shame. I should start praying here. So I just started praying, feeling guilty next to her. But as I was watching her the entire flight without stopping, I just became so burdened to pray for her. Because I knew that her zeal, as humbling as it is, was a zeal without knowledge that we saw last Sunday. A zeal where she was trying to earn divine blessing and favor without seeing the salvation that's readily available in front of her. You see, receiving grace, receiving grace is what keeps so many from being saved. You know, you would think it is the easiest thing in the world to receive grace, to receive a gift. But to a tragic irony for humanity, it is perhaps the hardest thing in the world to do. And why millions reject salvation today. It's like this. You know, you may have heard this recent news of the 12 Thai boys the soccer team of Thai boys with their coach who were stuck in this deep, uh, flooded cave. And they actually spent two weeks, ultimately, in that cave without food. Thankfully, they had water. But they were without food, and they were without hope unless someone came to their rescue. Now, thankfully, there was a tremendous effort, and a risky rescue mission was put together. It was with uh, Thai Navy SEALs and with professional divers brought in from other countries, and they went in, and they, saved, and they saved every single one of them, thankfully. Now, can you imagine these rescuers going into these caves at the risk of their lives, and actually, in fact, one Navy SEAL did lose his life in the rescue effort. Can you imagine them going in, getting to the boys, only for the boys to say, what are you doing here? We don't need you. We're making it out, okay? We can find our own way out. Go back to where you came from. You see that's the Israelites who don't see their utter need for rescue and they have rejected grace. How heartbreaking and tragic. Now, to Israel's refusal to receive grace, how does God respond to them? How does God respond? He could have simply just been like, okay, that's it. I gave you that offer. You rejected it. I'm going to walk away. No, but he responds with more grace. That's how relentless his grace is. And he pursues after his people in the most stunning way. And that's what this passage unfolds for us. How God brings Israel back to himself to receive grace. Now, how does he do it? Now, follow along with me. This is how he goes about this. First, he hardens Israel's hearts. We see this in verses 7 to 10. He hardens them in their rejection of Jesus. Now, it is his righteous judgment upon them, giving them over to their stubborn unbelief. It is the reason why the majority of the Jews today are not saved. Now, this is confusing. If God is going to be faithful to his people, if God is going after them, then why harden them? Why judge them? What is that judgment ultimately for? Is it lasting? Well, we see the purpose in verse 11, if you look there with me. It says, so I asked, did they stumble, did Israel stumble, in order that they might fall? Meaning, fall beyond recovery? Fall for good? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel Jealous. Do you understand? God hardening Israel in their unbelief is actually the very means by which they will eventually return back to God. Now how so? How does this all work out? Well, it is because the Jews' hearts are hardened and they reject Jesus and the gospel that the gospel is then thrusted out to the rest of the world. To all the other peoples Other nations of the world We see this in the book of Acts And you see of the Apostle Paul In his missionary journeys He gets to a city What's the first thing that he does He enters into the Jewish synagogue To preach the gospel to them Because they are to hear it first From the Old Testament scriptures So he presents the gospel to them And says Your scriptures points to the Messiah Who has come Who has laid down his life But what happens, over and over again, the vast majority of the Jews reject his message. So then what does Paul do? He moves on to the non-Jews, where he proclaims this um, unbelievable invitation of grace. This grace that is not exclusively Israel's right and privilege, but there is equal room at the table for them, These Gentiles who did not seek after God, in fact, ran the other way, lived in darkness, but now can come in and receive this grace without doing a thing, simply receiving it. So Israel's rejection of the gospel leads to the gospel going out to the Gentiles, which then what? Makes Israel jealous. You see, it's like England watching other nations, including their rivals, just like France, who just won this World Cup, winning tournament after tournament over and over again while they continue to be left empty-handed. It's like if any of those Thai boys rejected stubbornly that offer of rescue only to hear others who were more than willing to be rescued Get out free to safety. Get the treatment that they need. Eat all the food that they were craving craving for the the days that they were in the cave while those boys who rejected the rescue are still left in the hopeless darkness. Or it's like the parable that Jesus taught of the older brother who stands outside with jealousy. jealousy looking upon the lavish party thrown on the younger, his younger rebellious brother who has come home. Paul describes his ministry to the Gentiles, trying to bring as many in as possible through his preaching of the gospel. He, ex- he describes it this way in verses 13 and 14. It says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In verses 25 to 26, this is the way that it will be done. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see, what's the only way that stubborn, rebellious, unbelieving, stiff-necked Israel will be brought to their knees, desperate for grace? It's when they see the full influx of people from every other nation come in and receive salvation, not by anything that they've done, but again, just simply receiving what Jesus has done for them. And that will one day cause Israel's pride to be broken, their self-reliance to be broken. They will be brought to their knees, utterly desperate for grace, and they'll finally receive it in faith. In Jesus, they will receive the full forgiveness of their sins, In Jesus, they will receive the perfect righteousness that they've been striving so hard for on their own. You know, this is God sending rescuers into the cave once again to help rescue and deliver out those who stubbornly refused that help the first time. That is his unbelievable, relentless grace to them. Now, perhaps there are some of you in this room, I don't take for granted that everyone here has a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps there are some of you in this room that are like the Jews, receiving grace, Simply doing that is precisely what's keeping you from salvation in Christ. Perhaps you're trying to merit God's blessing and favor just by being in church, thinking that your church attendance will bring you blessing and favor from God, or through your religious efforts. What some try to do is they try to clean up their own lives, clean up the mess of their own life so that they make themselves favorable. Acceptable in the eyes of God and others. Is that you? If so, would you have your eyes open and your hearts move by what's going on in this passage? To be brought humbly to your knees and to receive what others all around you freely embraced without doing a thing except receiving grace by faith? Would you realize your utter need for rescue and that in Jesus Christ in his perfect life that brings the righteousness you need to stand before God approved that in Jesus' death it brings the full forgiveness of your sins And that in the resurrection of Jesus, it brings the everlasting life beyond the grave that your heart longs for. That in him, there is full rescue to be had. If you just simply believe and embrace it. So I invite you now. Come, trust him. And receive the salvation that many have embraced. Now for the rest of us who have received this salvation by faith, I want to encourage you never, if you're ever tempted, to, be take for, to take it for granted that God has been this relentlessly gracious to you, that he has chased after you despite your stubbornness, despite your waywardness, that he has done everything need to be done to bring you to your knees so that you would receive His grace. You know, I don't know what you think, if anything at all, about Jewish people. Maybe you don't think much at all about them. You know, sadly, there has always been, and even to this day, there is much anti-Semitism in different forms and varying degrees. But as Christians, our hearts should break our Jewish brethren. We should never feel in any way that we're superior to them because of the faith that we have. Our passage gives us this image that it's actually the Jews that are the nourishing root of the salvation tree. And we were the wild branches that were grafted in. Yes, it's true that right now salvation for for the Jews depends on us Gentiles that would stir them to come and turn back to Him. But our faith has always been and will always be dependent on Jewish heritage. On the Hebrews' worship of the true and living God. And so one of the ways that we can express our gratitude to God for His relentless grace to us it's perhaps something that you've never, ever thought of doing, and that's praying for the salvation of Jewish people. You know, last Sunday, Pastor Luke uh, talked about the three billion-plus unreached peoples of the world. You know what the, perhaps the most under-the-radar unreached people group of the world is? It's the Jewish people, right in our midst, all around us. Less than 1% of them are Christian. Now, right now, it seems like a hopeless case. But you know what? We can pray. If any of you have any Jewish friends, perhaps you have the heart, the courage to share Christ with them. And we can do that with the absolute certainty that one day, they will receive salvation. Our labor, our prayers, our evangelism to them will not be in vain. You know, one day it is the hope for England, hopefully sometime soon, that football will indeed come home to them, ending years of miserable failure. You know, if it's possible for the Chicago Cubs, my baseball team... If it's possible for the Philadelphia Eagles, my football team, it is surely possible for England that football will come home to them. Well, you know what? We have absolute certainty that salvation, blessing, true worship will come home to Israel. And we could do our part to see to it that that happens. As an express gratitude For his relentless grace to us. Which then leads us to our last thing that we want to see about God here. In and through all of this, we see God's unsearchable wisdom. Do you see God's perfect, mysterious wisdom in his plan to save both the Jews and the Gentiles? Only he can work in this most uh, astonishing, unpredictable way. Even using the hardening of hearts to bring both groups to a same place of desperation for mercy. Verses 30 to 32, what do we see there? For just as you, Gentile, at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they, too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also now may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. When we step back and look at God's sweeping plan for all peoples of the world. The only appropriate way for us to respond is how Paul ends this chapter 11 in verse 33. What do we see there? He stirred up to exalt God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Paul's theology is leads to doxology, a word that simply means praise and worship unto God. You know, indeed, God's ways are far beyond our comprehension. God's ways for the world, for Israel, for the Gentiles, God's ways for your life are beyond your understanding. There are many points where God's ways seem very confusing, if not outright painful. But when you look at God's perfect wisdom, in this chapter we're given the end of the story. When you see God's perfect wisdom for the nations, can you not trust God's wisdom for your tiny life? no matter how confusing even painful it gets at times you know when i think about trusting in even delighting in god's perfect unsearchable wisdom for your life in the bible i think of joseph i'm even remember joseph's story His life was horrible. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, who then told their father, Jacob, that he was dead. He ended up in Egypt, where he worked for Potiphar. He was accused of sexual harassment falsely by Potiphar's wife and thrown into jail. And then he was left in jail, forgotten unjustly for years. But in God's providence, he ultimately gained the favor of Pharaoh himself. And he became a prime minister in Egypt in the time of severe famine, which forced all of his brothers to come down to Egypt from Israel to get food for the entire family, the tribe, for survival. Now eventually, after their father Jacob died, Joseph had the opportunity to take vengeance back on his brothers for the egregious evil that they did to him years before. And the brothers actually expected something to come, something to happen to them from this prime minister, powerful person of Egypt who could now end their lives. And so in Genesis 50, we read them saying, and now please forgive The transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And how does Joseph respond to them? He has every right to punish them. He has every right to take vengeance on this egregious evil done to him that cost him many years of his life and suffering. But how does he respond? Joseph wept when they spoke to him his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about many people should be kept alive as they are today. What unbelievable perspective. What an unbelievable response. If something like that was done to you, could you forgive? Could you let go of your bitterness like that? Could you even rejoice in being reconciled to your brothers who hurt you? How was Joseph enabled to respond this way with such beautiful grace? Because he trusted in, he saw, he delighted in the perfect, unsearchable wisdom of God over his life. And not only his life, but many people's lives. You know, I think about God's perfect wisdom Dictating my life, and even through me, others. You know, growing up, I was, as many of you are aware, very um, ambitious academically, and I had one goal. Uh, that's the goal of many others, especially Asians, and that's to go to Harvard, want to be a Harvard alum, have a Harvard degree. So that's why I worked my butt off. And I thought I had the resume to get in. I had my 4.0 GPA. I had my valedictorian in high school. and uh, I did all these activities, got all these awards. I thought I would get in. One day, not a packet, but a letter came in the mail. It was a letter that told me I was on Harvard's waiting list. Which is their kind way of rejecting you. Because nobody on Harvard's wait list gets off that list and gets in. Nobody turns out Harvard when they receive acceptance from them. So when I got that waitlist letter, I was devastated. My dream crushed. So I had to fall back to my second option: debating between going to Northwestern, which was closer to my house, or to Penn. And what ultimately won me over was I couldn't go to Harvard, so you know what? I can get rich. I can go after the most lucrative career possible, have the most comfortable life I can, have status. So what drew me to come here to Philadelphia in the first place was Wharton. To get my degree in finance, to move up to New York, live in Manhattan, get a job in investment banking, make a lot of money, live a nice, wealthy, comfortable life. That became my dream. Now, as I look back, I saw how God used that bait to bring me to Philadelphia. You know, I thought I was coming to this school at 38th and Spruce Street. And now, as I look back, I realize that more than that, that's what drew me here. But God's plan in His infinite wisdom was to bring me to this church on 48th and Spruce Street. Some of which know very well Emmanuel, that our churches have come out of. And it was through that church that God flipped my life upside down, changed everything about me with the gospel. My ambition my values, my heart. It was through that church that I learned to love God and love people genuinely, perhaps for the first time in my life, sincerely. It was through that church that I learned how to serve. I learned how to teach the Word. It was through that church that I received my calling into ministry. It's through that church that I have had the privilege, along with many others, to see the saving and changing of many lives throughout the years. It's through that church after many years of waiting that I met my lovely wife and got married. Now I'm able to have a family. You know, God, he tricked me. (laughs) He used the bait-and-switch technique to bring me to Philadelphia using warden, which I would have never come. I wanted to go to Boston. But he brought me here. He knew what he was doing for the saving of my life and through me and many others, the saving of many lives. So that's why as I look back, I can do what Joseph did to his brothers. I can now genuinely say to Harvard, you meant evil against me, <laughs> but God meant it for good. And just like Joseph, I can now, from the bottom of my heart, forgive Harvard for what they did to me. It's for the very best. I'll give you another simple assignment this coming week not only look up God's promises to you, but I want you to spend a few sincere moments just reflecting back upon your entire life up to this point. Most of the things that God is doing, you don't know know about. His ways are unsearchable. We don't know the end of the story. But as you think about your life, with all the detours and the seeming setbacks? Would you see that in and through it all? God's wisdom is absolutely perfect. He knows what he's doing. It's all going to end beautifully for you. Can you trust that his ways for you, higher than your ways, are for your very best? And can you be reassured of that by seeing and thinking about how relentless his grace has been to you, chasing after you who are running away from him, tackling you, bringing you to your knees so that you would receive grace. And know that anchoring all of this, it's God's covenant faithfulness to you, his promise to be yours, and that you are his he will never turn away from his word he is obligated to keep that no matter what starting next Sunday we're going to make a big turn in the book of Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book which is about how we are to live in light of the gospel but before we do that starting next week the engine, what stirs us and motivates us to live obediently and faithfully to God is to be overwhelmed, is to be drenched in the waterfall of the mercies of God to us and to be stirred to worship him. So let your heart so be stirred, marvel, That is grace upon grace upon grace to you. And in view of that, let's live for him. Let's pray.